1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Stephen Rodriguez. Today I'll talk with Robert McGreevy, a professor of history at the College of New Jersey, about his new book, Borderline Citizens, the United States, Puerto Rico, and the Politics of Colonial Migration, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2018. Professor McGreevy's monograph brings together the histories of U.S. colonialism and migration to understand the meaning and limits of U.S. citizenship through examining the United States' shifting and deeply asymmetrical relationship with the island from the end of the 19th century to the late 1930s. To do so, Professor McGreevy examines the debates among both Puerto Ricans and American policymakers regarding the legal status of the island, from the insular case era that defined Puerto Ricans as foreign in a domestic sense to later pieces of legislation that extended a rights-poor version of US citizenship. While McGreevy's book is grounded in legal history, His work elegantly slides between a number of historical literatures, including labor history, social history, and the history of the United States and the world. I'm pleased to have the opportunity to discuss this book with Professor McGreevy. Uh, Professor McGreevy, thanks for taking the time to to talk with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I thought we would just maybe talk first about how you came to this project um, and how some of your training as a graduate student might have influenced the kind of methodological choices you make in the book, and also just the the topic more generally.
2: Yeah, I would say, you know, I started graduate school right after 9-11. So I started in 2002. And I think I'm part of a cohort that was really influenced by 9-11, trying to understand the US role in the world, um, and trying to tell stories that, that start in the U.S., go out into the world, and come back to the U.S. And and that's kind of the shape of the story that I, that I tell here. I, I would say another major influence was um, my experience studying abroad, actually, in college many years ago when I lived on a banana plantation in, in Costa Rica. And it was the uh, Chiquita Plantation, which, of course, used to be United Fruit. And I got to meet men who were working in the fields who claimed that they had become sterile because of the toxins and the pesticides that they were spraying. And many years later, they, they were able to take their case to the U.S. circuit courts um, and, um, and start to win some damages. And that stuck with me, too, because I've, I've been very interested in how U.S. power operates outside the United States, and um, to what extent uh, foreign workers might have the right to stand before U.S. court.
1: And you use a lot of, you, you, the book is kind of grounded in, in, in legal history. I'm wondering, when did, did you come to legal history early on in, in graduate school, or was that something that kind of made its way into the project later on, or was it something shaped by the, the sources you were encountering?
2: Yeah, I, I would say, you know, one of the first questions I ask in the book is is how was it that um, Puerto Ricans in San Francisco could claim the right to stand before a U.S. court, the circuit court of San Francisco in 1919, when they were um, being uh, understood as non-citizens, even after the Jones Act of 1917. And so the legal questions, I guess, have always been front and center for me. Um, in grad school, I had the privilege of working with social historians and legal historians. And I think there was something exciting for me in um, connecting those two fields, especially as I came to see how um, the meaning of law is often kind of played out on the ground. You know, it's not necessarily what's decided in the court, but how it's later interpreted by, say, foremen, um, employers
1: um, uh, voting clerics, et cetera. I was wondering if you could, for, for, for listeners not familiar with some of the basic kind of legal history of, of the U S and Puerto Rico, if you could give us kind of a thumbnail sketch, uh, as you do in, the, uh, throughout the book, uh, of some of the main legal cases and, uh, legal categories, uh, that kind of defined this relationship between the two places.
2: Sure. I mean, w- one of the categories that I think especially interesting is is the category of coastwise. So this was an old nineteenth century term that um, was applied to Puerto Rico in the War of eighteen ninety eight, and it was it was done in the context of the war, um, and it essentially defines Puerto Rico as part of the Atlantic seaboard, um, and this then requires that all trade trading vessels carry U.S. flags. Um, it's a way of kind of protecting U.S. shipping channels. Um, and this was then renewed years later. In, um, um, in in fact, it's still been in place. And so we saw this with Hurricane Maria, that we, uh, we see inflated uh, prices for goods that have been shipped um, to uh, Puerto Rico on U.S. ships. Often things have to be routed through Jacksonville, Florida, um, uh, re-packaged on U.S. ships. And all of this has led to inflated prices that uh, have been a real um, source of consternation, of course, um, in in the post-Maria context.
1: And so one of the, for a lot of people perhaps are familiar with the the idea of um, of foreign in a domestic uh, sense, could you explain a, a bit more about that specific uh, phrase and where it comes from and, and some of the problems uh, that, that it created?
2: Yeah, that is the phrase that probably uh, people know best. And um, I think we want to understand the, the racism that's really at the heart of that. Um, I mean, that, that phrase describes the um, unincorporated status of Puerto Rico, um, foreign in the domestic sense. So unlike previous territorial acquisitions that had followed the Northwest Ordinance and had been understood as incorporated, Puerto Rico breaks with that tradition um, in 1898. And, and uh, these rulings, the insular cases you referred to, um, Downs Bidwell in particular, are the cases that um, really enshrine that that ruling and understand it as constitutional, but when you read those those um, opinions, you can see that those rulings are based on racist understandings of um, fitness for citizenship. Um, that Puerto Ricans are in in some way unqualified or incapable of being part of the polity, um, and so. That's, I think, a, a key legal mechanism by which Puerto Rico is kind of held at arm's length. But there are many other ways in which uh, Puerto Rico is drawn within uh, the U.S. orbit, as, for example, the coastwise uh, shipping laws. So it's that tension that I and, and ambiguity that I think is um, so important to understand the ways that. Puerto Ricans are defined as part of the U.S. in some ways, um, outside the U.S. in other ways, and um, I think that's part of what I'm trying to wrestle with in the book.
1: Yeah, on that note, I mean, a really um, kind of fascinating element of your book are the is the kind of labor organizing you look at uh, both uh, on the island and in the U.S. Um, and there, I think you, the, you're kind of mentioning this, this idea of the exclusionary and inclusionary um, relationship uh, between the US and Puerto Rico in terms of the migration uh, laws. I was wondering if you could um, kind of talk about, for listeners unfamiliar, why was it like this? Why did we see this, this you know rights-poor version of citizenship that was uh, advanced later on? And what were some of the motivations in in the first place of of opening up uh, migration law to to allow uh, Puerto Ricans to to work in the U.S.? What were some of these motivations on the uh, on the point uh, from the perspective of U.S. policymakers?
2: Yeah, so it's the, the labor question is is so fascinating and and important I think to understand because it, it's a key to understanding the the border, how the border is constructed. And as part of why I wanted the word border or borderline in, in the title, trying to understand through this case how a border is constructed and defined and how it can benefit certain groups at the expense of others, how dynamic and changeable the, the definition of the border is. And in the case of labor, I think you see this so so very clearly. So, for example, labor recruiters, are in the early 20th century traveling to San Juan and Ponce to recruit workers who are understood as non-foreign precisely so that they can sur- uh, y- you know circumvent the for- the foreign act the alien contract labor law um that would restrict the importation of foreign laborers so Various interest groups are playing with these definitions, foreign, non-foreign, um, to seek advantage. And we see, when, as we move forward in time in World War One, the Department of Labor will recruit over 12,000 Puerto Ricans to work in the U.S. Uh, south in, in army camps. And this is a story, I think, that um, helps us kind of flesh out our understanding of the Great Migration. We think of the Great Migration in the World War I period when Blacks, of course, are moving from the South to Northern factories. But here, at this very moment, we see also the U.S. Department of Labor recruiting Puerto Ricans to the U.S. South to fill some of the positions left by Blacks who've who've left for the North. And so, the story I, I think it helps us, the story of Labor, I think, helps us some of the narratives um, that we have long relied on in, in 20th century U.S. history. Um, the story of the Great Migration, for example, could be narrated in a kind of liberatory way. And um, by adding this colonial dynamic, I think we can see um, how um, the Great Migration is also a story of exclusion Um, uh, you know, of of, uh, colonial groups. I mean, to the extent that Puerto Ricans are brought into the U.S. orbit, they are then, um, even after 17, after the Jones Act, they are then constantly faced with accusations that they're non-citizens. Many of them will um, suffer greatly uh, during the influenza pandemic and after, and then seek to return to the island. So the story of migration in the World War One period, is is uh, I think complicated by the Puerto Rican story.
1: Yeah, and and I think in line with some some recent immigration histories, your your work tries to in, in some way provide a, a more kind of complete account of how these migration networks actually functioned. Uh, so so looking at kind of moving between the mainland and the colony, and understanding that the, the kind of relationship between those two places and i was wondering what on this kind of spatial level if that presented any challenges uh for you when you were writing the book on on trying to figure out how to move between those two domains um what to what to focus on and when
2: yeah yeah you you've really hit on something there i mean from the from the research perspective this was a book that took me all over the place um i mean I think what was key was it was my time in San Juan working in the Archivo with the Fortaleza collection. I was able to really find pieces of these different stories that I was not finding in the National Archives in D.C. And so, you know, because it's a colonial history, the, the record is just scattered across so many different archives. And part of the joy of the project for me was to piece together these different elements to try to tell a coherent story. I I think I was constantly drawn to the intersection, the dynamic uh, swirl, I would call it, um, of uh, where I would see US colonial power and Puerto Rican migration colliding. And whenever I could find those um, two forces coming together, that's when I knew I was on the right track. you know, there were many times I, I knew I was not on the right track. I think all of us probably f- felt that. But um, especially in the Archivo in, in San Juan, there were a number of historians um, kind of working alongside me on their own projects. And when we would take lunch breaks, I was always grateful they would kind of point me in the right direction.
1: I'm wondering on on this note of um sources uh for for graduate students who are kind of thinking about designing their dissertation or who are writing prospectuses I was wondering if you could you know speak about what what this project was like when it was a dissertation um and you know if you were perhaps nervous about undertaking uh s- such a wide range of archival work um and if you know if you were ha- you were limited in in a sense and and had to kind of uh, realize the, the practical limitations and, and do some further research when you were working on the manuscripts. Could you just say a little bit about the kind of dissertation into book in terms of the, the research component?
2: Yeah, um, I think I was very fortunate because um, my advisor, um, Jackie Jones, was very willing to kind of take take on this project, you know, as a labor historian, as someone who's studied racial ideologies um but not as an expert in puerto rico and so um i had kind of a home base there with uh someone who was really willing to work with me but then the challenge that i had to take on myself was to to kind of build out my expertise you know to learn as much as i could um about the puerto rican historiography and um And so that was really, really on me. I mean, I think, I think for many of these projects, um, there's no one, no one person who can be the expert in in all of it, you know? And so it's kind of on us as, you know, grad students, um, especially, you know, for those of us who might be interested in kind of charting a new course or, um, combining subfields, like I was mentioning, um. I think there's that's some of the work that we that's on us in grad school is to kind of tap into different expertise of 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 different advisors. Um, Once I got through the dissertation, I think I realized that I wanted to do more with um, the pre eighteen ninety eight moment. So I really started the dissertation in eighteen ninety eight, kind of thinking of it. through a U.S. lens, you know, given that my training uh, is really as a U.S. historian, and when it came time to turn it into a book, I realized that I needed to, needed to understand the Spanish colonial context before 1898 as well, and um, so that was another heavy lift, you know. Um, but um, the project took took me a while. I think I think you know some projects like this will take longer. But, um, you know, I, I think there's satisfaction in, in, in trying to draw together some of these disparate fields.
1: You know, the, your, your, your kind of methodological, um, pluralism and, and your you're, you're intervening on a lot of different historiographies. And I think that comes across in the, your source space. Um, I mean, the, the, the kind of obvious starting point with the legal cases, which you, you use throughout the book. Uh, very effectively, but you also draw on on a host of other uh, types of rich cultural sources to get at some of these racial attitudes that we were discussing earlier. Um, And and particularly in the the chapter about the kind of debates about the autonomy uh, charter. Um, I think, you know, these really kind of rich sources, I'm wondering if there was a particular source that you encountered when you were developing the project that really made you feel like, uh, you know, that, that kind of excited you in some way because it was so rich, or it made you uh, it made you able to see kind of where this project w- was going. If you had any kind of moment like that in the archives,
2: yeah, I would say um, one example might be the um, the broadside that came out in um, in 1920 um, to. Uh, try to clarify for the American public that Puerto Ricans are, in fact, U.S. citizens after 1917. And um, this was something that I found in in the archivo in, in San Juan, and I didn't find any trace of this in in the U.S. archives. And um, part of what was so fascinating about this source is that, in the end, it it, it kind of creates even more ambiguity for whoever's reading it. Um, and I think, um, you know, Puerto Ricans in, in the late ten, teens and into their early 20s are asking for some form of identity card to prove their citizenship status, especially before employers. And this was what um, the um, Bureau of Insular Affairs came up with. They, they continually said, no, we're not going to issue a card. But instead, we'll issue this broadside and you know staple it to telephone poles. Um, but I think I, I think part of what's so fascinating about this document is just how ineffective it is, um, and how how little the bureau was willing to do to clarify the status of Puerto Ricans uh, even after the Jones Act was passed. And I think that speaks to the deep, deep ambivalence of uh, federal authorities and racial nativists in this period who, in the end, may be most comfortable with an ambiguous status uh, for Puerto Ricans that allows them to be a kind of reserve army of labor, uh, expendable, um, and kind of, um, you know, living at the whim of uh, U.S. authorities, easily deportable, etc. cetera.
1: I was wondering if you could um, talk about how the U.S. approach uh, to Puerto Rico in terms of legal approach, and also perhaps the some of the racial uh, discourse changed um, over the course of the, the early 20th century. Um, you speak of the, sort of tutelage, the language of tutelage uh, early on, um, and I guess some of that comes out in, in, in the legal uh, discourse as well. But what are some of the main... Uh, changes that take place uh as a result of um protests and a kind of um activism on the Puerto Rican uh, side.
2: Well, um it, yeah, I think it's I think it is really an important through line in this story, the question of fitness for citizenship because we see in the context of the US occupation in the island the debates around extending suffrage. Um, and so uh, the us ultimately decides on a very narrow definition of who who could be considered an eligible voter. In fact, it's a much narrower definition than under the Spanish crown. Um, so so the story starts with that very narrow definition of suffrage, and then I think the big change in the story is the recognition of the diaspora community in the states that to claim um, political uh, power, uh, it needed to be done stateside. And so the book ends in New York, where we see um, a major push um, to elect the first uh, Puerto Rican representative uh, to represent the Harlem district, uh, in New York. And this is in spite of the uh, literacy laws that had been imposed by the state that uh, presented a very real obstacle for voters. And so I think um, by the 1930s, we see uh, the beginnings of real political power um, and it's established stateside with the recognition that um, that Eventually, this power could also then benefit those living on the island.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Great. And do you find that, um, in terms of the, the kind of racial attitudes, you have a lot of, um, you know, interesting historical, uh, characters, uh, in your book, um, and you kind of draw on some of their writing, um, would you say that, um, was, was there a, a, a kind of clear, do you find a clear attempt to try to, um, of, these, of these characters to try to ar- articulate their, their racial views in a kind of um, careful or measured way, or were they more, more sort of blatant in their kind of uh, their, their views? I mean, do you, do you find a lot of kind of trying to manipulate, uh, to, to make it seem as if they uh, did not hold these types of views, or was it more o- open?
2: Yeah, well, so uh, part of the fun of the project, if I can say it that way, uh, is just how bald these folks were, you know, in terms of their um, racial rhetoric. So, um, you know, the, the language of uh, fitness for citizenship is prevalent throughout. And um, then, of course, we'll see the eugenics language. Um but you can see it even in in the uh, majority opinion of Downs Bidwell um that um the Puerto Ricans represent a race that cannot be easily assimilated i mean it's really very much out in the open and um i think that's true in the in the early decades and then you know as things progress you start to see um some of that language is shift, you know, but, um, but for the most part um, in this period, I mean, even, even where I end, I guess I'm, I end in the, in the 30s, and um, even there you can see racial nativists um, s- speaking of racial incapacity. So you can see that as late as the 30s.
1: I think it's interesting that that you talk about the Jones Act and this this point. And you mentioned that you know President Wilson found this to 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 be an embarrassment. There's kind of a, a PR nightmare to to not uh, ha- have Puerto uh, Rican citizenship. I mean, a limited uh, rights, poor version, uh, as you mentioned. But um, I'm I'm wondering how you see this relating to some of the newer work on you know inter, uh, interwar internationalism and the kind of, um, moral dimensions or, or the rhetoric of, um, equality that kind of was, was part of that era. Do, do you find that, um, the kind of discussions that you see or or the rhetoric changes as a result of that? I mean, President Wilson seems to be pushing that, but is it a a more general shift you see?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. You're probably thinking of Manella's work, um, Uh which is so important in this field. Um, You know, I think in the case of Puerto Rico, I do think that um, the labor unrest on the island, the widespread protests, thousands and thousands of people striking, I think this did represent a uh, potential source of embarrassment for for the Wilson administration. And, um, you know, I think part of that may be, um, uh, you know, th- there's, some been gr- there's been some great writing on the suffrage m- movement domestically in the U.S. I'm thinking of uh, Allison Snyder's book. And to the extent that suffragettes were able to point to uh, the Puerto Rican case um, and say, oh, Puerto Ricans are g- being granted suffrage. Uh, so should we. Um, So, you know, there were various kind of pressure points here on the Wilson administration. I mean, you had suffragettes kind of um, protesting outside the White House gates, um, unfurling banners in the Capitol building, um, all referring to the Puerto Rican case. And then you also had these, um, uh, you know, the commission reports on the labor unrest. Um, And so... To the extent that that Wilson and others in the Bureau of In Affairs had hoped that Puerto Rico could represent you know um the possibilities the, the best of what America is capable of uh to the rest of Latin America, I can see how the pressure was really mounting on on the wilson administration i i'm I guess I'm a little um Skeptical I- in general of kind of how willing Wilson was to yield to this, to this kind of pressure. Um, certainly, I mean, if you look at the Haiti case, Wilson is just unyielding in this same moment. But I do think there's something particular about the Puerto Rican case um, that um, makes it maybe more visible and, uh, both domestically and internationally. And that may be why Wilson responds
1: great. um I was wondering we're kind of speaking a bit about um you know what is what is unique about the Puerto Rican case compared to some of the other um unincorporated territories and i would imagine that also kind of perhaps shaped your initial research um deciding where you want to kind of focus on this this issue of citizenship what what is what is um unique in some way about the Puerto Rican case? Uh, that did not kind of apply to some of the other incorporated territories or uh, of the kind of u s foreign policy towards Latin American countries uh, or territories more generally so yeah part of part of the appeal of studying the Puerto
2: Rican history is that it is a a, a formal colonial administration you know established in Fortaleza. We have all of the records um in San Juan um and so you know if you were to compare the Puerto Rican case to um say um other sites of US empire where um you know I'm thinking in Cuba or Dominican Republic or uh, I mean the list goes on and on um I think the records are just a bit harder to come by and so that's from a research perspective that was part of the appeal I felt like this was a story that I could really that I could really tell, and um, the, other, the other striking thing here is that it, um, the Puerto Rican example, I think, helps establish how, how similar the U.S. is to other imperial powers, uh, such as Britain, and I think we can see that more clearly with, say, Puerto Rico than with, say, Cuba. And again, that might be partly just because of the sources that are available to us. But um, my, my goal, I think, you, I think you can tell from the book, you know, one of my goals is to really um, strike at the heart of American exceptionalism. And I think one way to do that is to establish how colonial migration patterns in the U.S. context are really s- quite similar to those in, in other uh, imperial contexts.
1: And I'm wondering if you could also speak about how Port- in, in the time period you're studying how Puerto Ricans, you discuss kind of debates about citizenship, Puerto Ricans advocating uh, for these rights. But when you know, the Jones Act offers a limited uh, version, maybe you could speak more about what exactly was limited about uh, the citizenship granted. Uh, to Puerto Ricans um, what was kind of the reaction and were there Puerto Ricans who rejected uh, who did not uh, apply for citizenship
2: yeah oh there were definitely there definitely were people that um, that rejected this citizenship and um, interestingly even, even those who rejected it were still uh, eligible for the draft for the US draft in World War I and this is one of the reasons that I've been very skeptical of the argument that that the Jones Act was imposed simply to recruit soldiers in world war one I. I think I think it's more nuanced than that i think I think the Jones Act in nineteen seventeen is is so so severely limited i mean um uh, there's there's no representation, for example in Congress, no voting representation in congress there's no ability to vote for uh president uh only in the primary but not in the general election um for those living on the island i mean so so is a very limited form of citizenship, and then um for those living in the states. They're able to establish a fuller uh, citizenship after a residency period that that varies by state, but, um, yeah. But in in general, I would say that the 1917 um, Jones Act, to me, the real effect is on employment, and that that's the story that I try to tell. I mean, the Jones Act does not confer political rights in the way that we might expect. Instead, what I think we see are um, the kind of basic rights of employment. So earlier in the book, I discussed the national status that was established in 1904 and how that status really did serve to limit uh, Puerto Rican employment at uh, the level of the federal government. So we see, for example, the Navy is unwilling to consider Puerto Ricans that are defined as nationals. Um, And then in 1917, with this new definition of citizenship, we see that the federal government is now actually recruiting um, thousands of Puerto Ricans to work in the United States. So I see the big shift there in terms of employment eligibility, and this is why I connect in the book the nineteen seventeen jones act to this this dramatic uptick in migration to the u s um, as employment becomes more and more viable for Puerto Ricans with this status
1: now once um, something that you highlight in the introduction of the book is you you, you draw on some recent uh, migration histories that that talk about um, the kind of racism between uh, migrant groups uh, once they are in the U S and certainly it existed um, in, uh, in Puerto Rico as well. Uh, But what did you find there and what, um, what sort of challenges that did that kind of present in trying to, I don't know, maybe speak about, and to trying not to present a kind of homogenous view of, of Puerto Rican migrants and try to represent the, The different interests, the kind of elite and non-elite interests at play. And and I guess also on that, what was the kind of, I'd imagine that most of the migrants were not the elite uh, Puerto Ricans, Uh, but what were the kind of backgrounds? What kind of labor were they uh, engaged in?
2: Yes, uh, that's right. I mean, the story that I focus on is really the story of working class folks. Um, More elite migrants had entered the U.S. before 1898 um, with passports um, under the Spanish uh, regulations. And so, for example, we have Celso Barbosa, who was able to attend um, medical school at the University of of Michigan um, before uh, the U.S. occupation. And so... The story that I, that I focus on during the occupation period is one of, of uh, labor migration, working-class migration. And so these are folks that are working on, on cotton ranches in, in Arizona, sugar plantations in, in Hawaii, um, rope factories in, in St. Louis. And um, part, of, uh, part of what I found is that um, the kind of status the changing ambiguous and dynamic status of Puerto Rican laborers was something that um, employers were very much attuned to, um, as well as the colonial state. So, for example, in 1917, when the U.S. government establishes the the Literacy Act um, and curtails Mexican migration into the U.S. Southwest, we see the U.S. Department of Labor pivot to recruit Puerto Ricans at that moment. Um, And so I think both employers and the government officials are very aware of these shifting dynamics and um, seizing on these opportunities to import laborers.
1: And what, after having finished this, this project, I mean, obviously one of the the, the undergirding themes is, is, is trying to understand U S power. Um, and you do that in, in, in many ways, but I'm wondering what, what would it kind of be the takeaway for you in terms of, um, what this, uh, monograph kind of tells you about, uh, writing this monograph tells you about the nature of, uh, of U S power and how it operates in a a transnational uh, context.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, I think, uh, I think part of what I've learned is that um, that it, it's it, it's a very dynamic kind of interplay between, um, say, the power of corp- corporations, the power of the colonial state, and the agency of migrants themselves. And I, I have tried uh, it's something I really worked hard on in, in the book is to try to strike a satisfying balance. Between the kind of exclusionary control of the state on the one hand, and the agency of the migrants on the other, and that's that's the way that I see it. I see it as a balance. I when I was in grad school, I remember reading May Nye's Impossible Subjects. In fact, she came um, to give a talk, and I I was so excited by her work, and I still am. Um, but I think. You know, looking back, I think that book reflects a moment in the literature where the focus was more on exclusionary control. And um, what I am trying to do in this book is to balance um, these forces. Um, and to me, that, that's where the truth is.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's something that really comes across, and especially kind of the the r- really richly textured uh, local um, level kind of dynamics that that you look at really uh, allow that to kind of come to the, the fore uh, in the book. Um, as we're kind of getting to the end here, I thought we'd maybe talk about the contemporary kind of resonances of this story, which might seem obvious to an extent. But uh, I thought you know in your in your conclusion, um, you kind of bring us to to the present moment not just in terms of the history of Puerto Rico but um, some other uh, u.s um, changes in u.s migration policy and it, it seems largely a story of of continuity um, but of course there there also are some kind of changes especially I guess in terms of uh, of rhetoric although uh, more recently I think there have been more um, similarities uh, than differences but what what do you see could you could you speak a little bit about the contemporary uh, moment uh, of us uh, and Puerto Rico and
2: yeah, so, so the first thing I would say is, I mean, we just need to look back to the coverage of Maria, you know, the, the kind of mainstream news reporting. And you can see, I mean, in many ways, it reminds me of the kind of mainstream news reporting after 9-11. Um, so w- what I see in both cases is an ahistorical presentation of a disaster you know, with no understanding of the kind of prehistory um, that conditioned all, uh, you know, everything that was about to unfold. Um, and so Maria, of course, is is not just um, a, a natural disaster. It's, it's it's also a man-made disaster that has been shaped by hundreds of years of colonial rule um, going back to the Spanish and then to the U.S., Uh, period, which is now still ongoing. And I think one of my hopes is that um, Americans um, studying their own nation's history will start to study Puerto Rico. Uh, You won't be surprised to hear me say this, but I I, I think scholars for, for a while now have been looking for ways to integrate Puerto Rican history into the main lines of American history so that this history could be understood and taught to a majority of citizens rather than just to, say, um, a minority who are studying this material in an ethnic studies class, for example. And so that's one of the challenges that I think we face structurally within uh, the academic realm. And uh, my hope is that American citizens and American students of the past can expand their understanding of the U.S. in the world such that they develop a kind of empathy and and, and historical understanding for, um, say, those crossing the border uh, uh, with Mexico or those coming from Puerto Rico. Um, there are important histories here that are often invisible to American citizens and our, our job is to try to make those more
1: visible. Great. Um, and as just a final question. Um, could you speak a little bit about what you're working on currently um, uh, your, new, your newest project and, and if, there is, if it relates at all to to the previous one or, or if you're kind of looking at some some, some newer uh, themes and topics?
2: yeah, so so maybe uh in, in response to this first project, I'm doing something very local. Um, so I am doing a history of Trenton, the capital of, of New Jersey. Uh, the last monograph on Trenton was published maybe 40 years ago. And so I see it as fertile ground. There's a lot to do. Um, Trenton was home to a sizable Puerto Rican community uh, after World War II. And so I've started work on an article I'm calling "Colonial Airlift" that focuses on um, the arrival of the early Puerto Rican, um, uh, 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 yeah, early Puerto Rican um, veterans in say 45, forty, forty-five, six, seven, that are um, uh, coming out of Fort Dix into the city of Trenton, and trying to tell the story of uh, those early years and um, and then the the challenges that they will face um, over the next couple decades especially during the period of urban renewal and so um, the city will be remade uh, with a new highway much like many american cities and it'll be the Puerto Rican neighborhood, the black neighborhood, and the Jewish neighborhood that will be targeted for highway expansion, and these families will be displaced. And so I think there's a story here to be told, a kind of um, a story of first um, experiencing colonialism um, in Puerto Rico, and then experiencing A kind of second wave of displacement uh during urban renewal and i'm i'm working on piecing that together and and that that's the project i'm going to work on next i'm very excited that i can kind of stay in one place uh i don't have to travel to many different uh archives and i think that'll be helpful during the during the quarantine
1: that sounds uh, really fascinating and I really look forward to, to reading uh, the book and, and any subsequent articles uh, that, that come out. Um, really enjoyed our, our chat today. Uh, thanks again for, for agreeing to talk uh, about your book. Oh, it's my, my pleasure, Steve.